Welcome to another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Hanley, and joining me on the other line, I'm pretty sure he got lost in the volume and hasn't found his way out, it's John McMahon. Incredible. I'm stuck. I become a virtual being. I don't know how to enter reality again. Is this the sky or is this a screen? <laughs> it's very hard to tell. It's very hard to tell. All I know is that there's a bad rendering of some random ass city behind me. The thing about it is like, we're just going to jump right in. I'll, cool. I'll introduce us a little bit more in a minute. But like yeah. the thing about the volume is like in the Mandalorian, at least in the 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 two seasons they'd released background never takes me out of it. Like I'm never, because there's like not anything complicated going on in the background. Right. Maybe the episode where they're like in the cave with like the frog egg lady, <laughs> like maybe in that one a little bit, but like generally like it's filmed in the volume. It was created basically for the Mandalorian or like, or, or souped up for that show. And like, it doesn't overuse it. I think it uses it less than other properties. (laughs) Yeah. So, so this is like a way to jump us into this conversation. Um, We thought that it would be interesting in to sort of take a step back and something that we consistently came back to in our discussions, I think both of Loki and of Moon Knight is like the visual effects and the way in which the VFX like was impacting things that we liked, things that we didn't like pulling us in or, or taking us out of the scene. And we would always come back to whether or not the, like the effects of it all was, was impacting our experience of the shows. And we have sort of slightly different takes on that, obviously. Surprise, 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 surprise. But also I think like thinking through that and talking through that together opens onto a bigger set of questions, which is like, what is it that draws us into a show versus what is it that takes us out of the the world of a show? And I think a lot of the shows that we're both interested in, in general, both of us separately, the things that bring us together, all of these shows are thinking about or actively trying to build a set of worlds, right? And so like, I think this question of drawing us in and taking us out and like what what's doing that, what mechanism is linked to how successful we're experiencing the world building of a show versus not. And I I think like, we're not going to talk a ton about the Americans today, though it will be part of this conversation. Like, I think one of the things that's so wonderful about the Americans is the world building feels authentic, believable, earned. Like, even when a character is there for one episode, like, we understand why they're only there for one episode or, mm-hmm. or they might be there for 12 episodes, right? Like that's connected to the world building of it all. So, and I think the VFX and the CGI question is also connected to world building. So I pose the question to you, what is it that draws you into a show? Um, what is it that takes you out of, of your experience of a show? And perhaps how do effects sort of like enter into that conversation for you? Right. This will surprise no one that (laughs) I am 
extremely interested in watching characters relate to and interact with one another and Mm -hmm. have kind of complex psychic dynamics that are communicated to us in some form is one of the two things that I care a lot about. And so I would like for whatever the visual language of a given show is, that it does some of that expressive or communicative work for the audience, or at least makes that available to us. Yeah. And then the second major thing that I want, or that draws me into a show or to a film or whatever, is goes back to the very first Met episode we did a few months ago about kind of, I like a little, a little surreality to it. I like a little transcendence. I like a little, you know, whatever. Um, Excess is one of the other ways we talked about it. And there are lots of ways we talked about it in that episode. And if there's going to be something or there's going to be some or a lot of CGI or VFX that are beyond what is capable with bodies in space on sets. Yeah. I want it to be connected to one or ideally both of those two things that I just mentioned. So let me actually give an example. Yeah, that would be great. Earlier today. And this is going to spoil a show that I don't think Danielle will ever watch. So I don't, I think we're fine here. Season one of The Terror, to me, is... Absolutely never going to watch that. ...an ideal example of how to use CGI and visual effects because there are both sets or locations or vistas or landscapes that I highly suspect are digitally created. Mm -hmm. And then there is one, I don't know even how to describe it, Toonbach is this creature that is kind of like a polar bear but also is connected to indigenous cosmologies and also is this kind of like mythic or mystical beast worth following British sailors in the 19th century trying to find a Northwest Passage, right? So like they are above what today we know is Canada, you know, so that's put it in a little bit of context. And so this creature, right, has to be digitally rendered. And like is clearly... They're not trying to go for, like, creating a lifelike polar bear or something. This is no doubt a creature that has been created through extensive CGI for this particular show. But the Toonbach is a creature in the way that it's embodying some of the thematics of the show that has to do with estrangement and alienation, that has to do with, I would say, it's about colonialism, that's about isolation, that's about mm-hmm. what it means to engage in masculinity in this particular context that they're in. Like the, the Toonbach, the creature, including its visual design, is connected to some of these broader themes and drives plot and certainly drives characterization. And there's something about the Toonbach as a creation of CGI. There's something about the way that the landscapes of the show are created, like I said, often yeah. and digitally, that serves to further like entrench me and pull me into the show rather than to alienate me or externalize me from the show. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I think actually like there is a way in which that overlaps with my own experience of these kinds of effects. Right. Which is like, I think I said to you while we were like brainstorming what to do in this episode, like one of the things like, I'm happy to watch an animated show. In fact, there are a number of animated shows like Rick and Morty, like Big Mouth, like Human Resources that I actually like, like Invincible that I actually really love. Like, and I, I appreciate the like the whimsy that is like 
an option in an animated show that is maybe not always an option in the the other kinds of shows that I like. I think the where you and I overlap and like where this where your sort of description of the Toombach, am I saying that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Um where your description of the Toombach sort of like like ping something for me is that like you it sounds like you don't you want the effects to like enhance or add to your experience of the show, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same. Maybe it's like an over-reliance on on such effects for like an ambiance or an experience in a show. That's the thing that pulls me out of a show where it's like some of the sequences, uh, there are some sequences in Moon Knight that are like totally uh, rendered through effects that I, that I love. So we talked about this in the run of the show, like the, when, Kanchi moves the sky back, like in time, the eclipse scene, like those are scenes that I really love because the effects are like, they're necessary and they, they, they're like important in the moment, but they're not trying to like do more than they're capable of. If that makes any sense. It does. And I think to me, it's about how you describe the relationship between us or like a generic viewer yeah. And the effects. And I think that <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, not sorry for doing this, but to be kind of phenomenological about it, right? Not I sorry. Want, I want something in the visual effects that are going to be part of shows that is forming an orientation towards the viewer that brings them into the show. Yeah. And internalizes the viewer into the show. Yeah. Rather than externalizing the viewer from the show. And so, like, I mean, I, I think the example of, like, the worst or most ineffective CGI in Moon Knight is something we agree upon. It's the fight scene between uh, Amit and Kanshu yeah. in the finale. And it's so... I don't even know. I don't even have the words to describe it. It's that it's such a disconnect yes. from any notion of relationality to the characters or to yeah. the world that it doesn't work at all. And I think it is very isolating or externalizing of the viewer. And there's like one exception where that sort of thing can work. And it might be like the example to stick with Moon Knight that you gave of the eclipse or the turning right. the sky back which also is something that is literally impossible, but because it has greater, because it looks better and because it just, you know, in a simple kind of aesthetic level and because it's more connected, it does that work of forging a further different kind of bond between a viewer or me and the show. Well, and like, I think something you said a little bit earlier, like you're interested, right? You're interested in a bit of the surreal or like, or exactly. And there's, to me, that's the, the distinction. There's a distinction between the, the eclipse scene or the turning the sky back, which is like something that couldn't happen, but we, but like, we can marvel at the happening Mm -hmm. of it in Mm -hmm. the show. Um, Yes. I didn't even try, but I'll take it. <laughs> Whereas the Kanchu Amit fight also is something that that wouldn't happen, but it's like it's like three more steps removed. <laughs> right? It's putting us in an animated show as opposed to using a set of technologies that tweak 
the experience of reality a little bit. Like there's like, it's, it's almost as though there's like a, it's like, uh, like on a spectrum and it's like, they've turned the volume up, just the brightness of the effects up way too high because they're like, Oh, effects are cool and we can use them. And they like, let us do fun things like in an animated show, we can do something different and whimsical. And it's like, yeah, but either we're like in that world of whimsy fully or we're like in a version of reality that's like just a little bit like tweaked. And I think like that, that small tweaking allows for me as a viewer to stay grounded while still imagining something different than what I see before my eyes in my everyday life. Yeah. So I think that for me, it's a matter to be, can just continue down the pretentious train, but when have I ever not done <laughs> I mean... that is that. I want visual effects that are impossible in the world that we live in to do like some metaphysical work on me or on the show or on the characters in a way that like the fight between Ahmed and Kanshu just is unable to do, you know, to be extremely uncharitable just because like out of its sheer ridiculousness and the way it looks. (laughs) Yeah. And like, so I, I wonder if part of it is like, I want to be part of an experience where the like eclipse scene is happening on the one hand. And also at least with the, the sky moving back, like we see the like implication, like we see people experiencing that within the show, right? Like there's sort of like a, a version of like performance or mimesis that we're like, we're seeing those layers. Whereas like, the Kanchu Amit thing like just feels like, okay, well, like this is not, this is not, not only not happening, but like uh, souls being zapped away as a function of this fight doesn't actually feel like a set of like, those are not concrete implications in the same way, like, holy shit, the sky turned back or holy shit, there's an eclipse in the middle of the day that like, wasn't supposed to be there i don't know there's like something it's like the tether to reality is the thing that actually like i like about it that's a useful distinction because there is supposed to be a tether to yes quote unquote reality and the amic kanji fighting that it is supposed to parallel and mirror in certain ways the fight between layla and mark steva and against hero but it's so steps out of that tether yeah. that it loses any possibility of maintaining that kind of connection. A hundred percent. And ultimately like I want more flourishes than I do. Let us live in CGI world. Yeah. Well, and me too, except that there are instances where I'm like, okay, we're fully in CGI world. And I think like those instances for me are when CGI world is part of the background and it's not the like main thing that we are, uh, that we're watching. So I know we, I think we disagree on this. Yeah. Um, but the scene I'm thinking of is like in Loki in in the lamentous episode. So episode three, where they're on the like weird moon, Mm -hmm. That I know what like, Lamentus is. Oh, hey, I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to presume. I, maybe you blocked it all out. I I watched Loki very carefully. I took notes. We talked about Lamentus. Fair. Um, so something that I like, that episode is like fully in the, like, 
it's fully CGI, right? All of the background is CGI. And like that doesn't take me out of it because it's it's the background is fully CGI and it's not like the main thing that's happening. And I think if I remember correctly, we even had the conversation that once they get to the city on Lamentis, the CGI becomes more of a problem, especially for me, but also for you to some extent. Yeah. And I think like, that's exactly it. It's like, is it the background or is it part of the like central experience? And like when it's part of the central experience. So like the Kanchu Amit fight is supposed to be the thing we're focusing on, right. In those scenes. And like, that is not a thing I want to focus on the like, weird western the deserted moon and then asteroids like yeah is that part of the experience on lamentus it is but like the thing that's happening is like the discussion the relationship between sylvie and loki and like that tension is like the key thing there and for me i'm just gonna every i need to stop prefacing this is a pretentious thing to say and just say the thing (laughs) because everybody knows if they're listening to this podcast that it's also about do we actually get to see actors acting in space in relationship to other actors or not, right? And when Sylvie and Loki are having a conversation on Lamentis, there's at least some notion of them acting in space in relation to one another, even if it's in front of, you know, the Unreal Engine or in front of a green screen or whatever. When... Kanchu and Ahmed are fighting like there's just none of that whatsoever and so there has to and you know then the Mandalorian is an interesting thing here right there's like the joke on the watch podcast that Pedro (laughs) Pascal was like only there on set for a day and did everything in an ADR booth uh from his home (laughs) but that's a place where it's a little bit harder I think to tell what's going on there no, I mean, I, I think that is, that's exactly it. The, like, the the Pedro Pascal joke of it all is, like, precisely the thing that, um, like, keeps coming into my, into my brain. Because it's, like, at what point do the effects, and, and this doesn't just have to be, like, computerized or, like, uh, like, virtual effects, right? Like, the visual effects, like, it can also be the, like, the reality that the main character of this is always doing some version of a voiceover. Right. Um, And so like, at what point do the effects take over for actual like content or like the meat of the show? Right. And a different way of framing that point, I think is, uh, and this is, I mean, a very simple thing to say, actually, are the effects, contributing to the narrative things that are happening or are they distracting or taking away from or not contributing or doing something different than contributing to the narrative things that are happening and what those narrative things are could be any large number of dynamics but it's a that that gets back to i think the like are you drawing the viewer in or or are you externalizing them from what is happening I think that 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 is exactly right. And that is that's such a that's such a smart way to put it as like and to come back to sort of where we started this conversation. Right. The like, is it what what's the relationship between what pushes us out of something and what draws us in? And I think you have like you've put your finger on it that it's like when the like the effects can do both of those things. And it's like it really does seem to be like it's 
sometimes when I'm watching the MCU shows, which we all know I'm a very big fan of, but like sometimes when I'm watching those shows, I'm like, ooh, maybe we didn't have to like dial up the like effects here. Maybe we could have just like done something like Hawkeye is not a show I loved, but there are pieces of it that I think are so smart. And part of it is like, you have Haley Steinfeld who's sort of like coming in as a new, like a new Hawkeye, Jeremy Renner, who hopefully is like getting cycled out of this. And then you have Florence Pugh who plays, who, you know, plays. I'm familiar. Uh, but like, Black Widow. right. Who plays new Yelena. Black Widow's younger sister, right? So she's in Hawkeye because, like, do you remember the, like, cutscene at the end of Black Widow? Like, Yelena... Louis Dreyfus is there. Exactly, and shows Yelena, like, a picture of Hawkeye, like, this is who killed your sister, right? So Yelena shows up in Hawkeye and is trying basically to, like, not necessarily kill, but she's, like, uh, maybe after... She's, like, angry at Jeremy Renner, okay, at Hawkeye. But, like, the best parts of that series are, like, the banter between, like, Yelena and Haley Steinfeld's character and even Jeremy Renner and, like, some other characters, too. Like, the best part of that series is just, like, the bullshit between characters. And the thing that that series, like, doesn't have a ton of effects that are that are not practical. Of course, I'm sure there are some, but, like, not a ton. It's kind of like, right... Some most of my favorite scenes from Game of Thrones are like the and this is like a watchism like people talking in a room, right? Yeah. It's when they have to like get on and off dragons. It's when like loot train is happening. It's like when the set pieces are like a little too big for their britches and it's like, "Oh, you know what would make this cool if we like rendered this all digitally?" and it's like, "Actually, I was fine in season one where we sort of get like Ned. I mean, famously like kind of the, there are no big battle scenes in season one of game yeah. of Thrones. They didn't have the budget for, you know, we get the hatching of the dragons at the very, very end. Very and that's end. like brief and tiny for a couple of seconds. Right. And also like their cloaks are literally made from like Ikea carpets, like famously and in a funny way made from like Ikea, like bedspreads and carpets. And so it's like, I'm fine. If stuff, I think there's sometimes this assumption in the Marvel machine and in, in shows like other machines. Yeah. Other machines, like shows like Thrones or even like even house of the dragon. Like there's already, I do want to talk about house of the dragon. So yeah. Yeah. Right. So like the assumption that, oh, we have we have the tools to like render this in a really cool way that it's like that that's the best thing we can do. And actually, like I would have been I'm like fine, you know, in like Princess Bride, they're like riding in a fake forest i'm like let's like the road <laughs> or in the americans sides. like as we've joked about on air the car scenes in the americans are funny because <laughs> they're, they're <laughs> the, like, like road they're is so living obvi- by <laughs> yeah they're so obviously like stationary or 90 percent stationary yeah. <laughs> on a set and there's just like some stuff happening in the background. right so it's like i and like that it's that doesn't take me out of it because it's like 
uh, fine. You didn't have the money or like you, it didn't make sense to like, you couldn't actually film this car chase as a real chase because otherwise we wouldn't be able to hear Carrie Russell, like being shot or whatever it is. I don't know. Um, like the assumption that the digital rendering is like always going to be better seems to be a working assumption in a lot of these like more bigger productions. And that's frustrating to me, even if I like them. A hundred percent. And I mean, this is also part of my, even before we did three months of MCU, this was <laughs> the case for me. Although certainly three months of MCU intense watching has accelerated this, that I was just like a little bit kind of over a content and IP stuff or like things that are content or IP forward. Yeah. Um, let's say, because like, is it all content is another question for another meta episode and another day, which we should write that down. <laughs> and I was a little bit just like out and fatigued and tired on that anyway. And so something like house of the dragon has been interesting where I'm like, yeah, it's pretty good and I'm enjoying watching it, but like, it's also not what I, necessarily want or need or think is the most important thing for me to watch at any given time like i'll keep watching it so we're recording this after the second episode has gone up um (laughs) and like uh, the dragons i'm fine with i don't particularly have a problem with them um and i'd have preferred the people in rooms talking scenes or outdoors scenes although somebody pointed out uh, it was on some song of ice and fire podcast that's reviewing house of the dragon pointed out the tourney arena in the first episode is shaped like a vulva so (laughs) that's that which is like a good visual trick right like that's actually a visual trick that is yeah 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 yeah, yeah. or and and as as they are contrasting that scene with the forced birth that um emma is made to give with her like coerced you know forced upon her killing murderous c-section i think it was on talk the thrones because that i I don't know if you listen to that one (laughs) i don't know oh Solid. It's where CR learns about the books. <laughs> so basically, that's how I would characterize that podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, House of the Dragon is interesting because I would say in Game of Thrones in general, the dragons didn't always take me out of it because I think like for the most part, they use them sparingly. I actually think something that took me that took me out of it more was like the size of the direwolves. Um, that that always felt like, and I know that they're supposed to be bigger, but there was something about the rendering of them that was just like, oh God, like what's happening here? The second episode just went up and John and I, as you know, are like avid listeners of the Watch podcast. So like, I think something that Chris and Andy talked about on their pod about the second episode is the background feels very digitally rendered. It's like clear that they're like in the volume. It's you're not seeing an overhead drone shot of Dubrovnik anymore. You're seeing like buildings that are painted onto a digital backdrop. Fine. And that was definitely more jarring to me. Like the dragons, it's kind of like, well, I, I don't know what a dragon would look like. So maybe it's like, that's what it looks like. I also think they, they kind of are there. They've been somewhat smart about it. There's not a ton of close-ups of the dragon or like, close-up movement of the dragon they kind of are like flying a little bit farther away and i think that that's like let's keep it there (laughs) yeah i mean so you have not read fire and blood no 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 you know where roughly where things are going i mean i know there's a lot of dragons 
Okay, yeah. So there's a lot of dragons, and they're going to fight one another. Yeah. So the, well, it'll be a test of of how you're feeling about the dragons coming on down the line. Well. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, and I mean, and uh, we should couch or caveat this conversation with: I stopped watching the Throne Show after season four to be stubborn and obnoxious about the books. You and Sean Although, Hanley. Me and Sean Hanley. So I'm in great company, and. <laughs> um, I think, though, perhaps, I don't know if this is surprising or unsurprising, I suspect that I would join Team Counterintuitive Take that Season 8 is good. That's my prediction. I actually, like, don't mind Season 8. People are like, how did the Viserys get, or how did Varys get from here to there? It's like, they're a time machine, and it's like, did you want the the worst part of of the other seasons is we had to wait a really fucking long time before people got from place to place. Let's just pretend that those four months passed. And like, yeah, I know that we like learned interesting things on the road, but like, I want to get down to brass tacks. Who's going to be, who's going to sit on the iron throne? Is the iron throne going to happen? Like what's going to happen with Daenerys and John? Like, that's what I wanted to see. So stop complaining that like, Oh my God, Varys is in high garden. And like, let's just let him be in high garden and like walk away. It doesn't spoil anything, but like, that's a thing people got really annoyed about. And it's like, I don't care. I don't care about the timeline. Um, yeah, I actually think like, I don't love where it ended up, but like specifically, but there are pieces of where it ended up that I really love. So this surprises no one. I'm not as down on season eight as people, like most people are because like, I'm, it's like, I'm watching a show that my friends are, my friends are back on the screen and I can talk about this show with my actual physical friends in the world. And like, that's all I really want in my life. But the other thing that I was going to say is, and I think that Andy had made this point or, or somebody made this point on one of the Ringer Thrones pods that like one of the biggest challenges in Game of Thrones was the like getting on and off of the dragon that that's the thing that is actually the most difficult to deal with and i i was thinking about that watching this past episode because you don't see rhaenyra get back you don't see her get off and you don't see her get back on and i was like huh and like again like when the dragons are in the air i'm like dragons be in the air and like (laughs) i i'm i'm open to even it looking a little bit more cartoony because like I don't know. We don't have dragons. I wish we had dragons. My D and D character had dragon blood, but like, right. I'm nothing if not consistent. <laughs> <laughs> I think another possible meta episode is you tell us about your D and D characters that you've played before. I've only played one, and I would okay. be more than happy to Great. like talk about it for a long time. <laughs> cool. That's or maybe that's for the Patreon. That and my facial reactions to things. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, that's, this is all to say that like, I'm, I think like, even though it's a thing that frustrates me about Marvel shows, the like over-reliance on digital effects or, or, or visual effects, right? Like over-reliance on these things it's a thing that I can, I still can be forgiving of. I like, but I have to then be like, okay, like in order to enjoy the show, you have to like, you have to detach from frustration about that. And I think that's the, I think of that as a kind of open-mindedness 
And I think like, that's the kind of thing that maybe it maybe feels counterintuitive because I do experience a deep amount of frustration around these kinds of effects. But it's like, I still want to watch these shows. When you went down the open-minded path, I thought we were coming to I'm closed-minded. No, <laughs> I don't. Shows. No, I wasn't even. Which would be I, accurate. I would not. I would not have dissented if that was the take. <laughs> I was, but I, I wasn't thinking about you. That's often my reaction when I like am frustrated about what like Andy and Chris are saying on the Watch Pod about Marvel. It's like right, but your starting point is like a close-mindedness about yeah. what TV Amen, brother. can write. <laughs> All right. So maybe you also are close-minded. But like, I would also say like, it's, it's like open-minded about a certain type of thing and close-minded about that certain type of thing. Right. Because I think like there are ways in which you are much more open-minded than I am when it comes to what constitutes like a, a show worth enjoying. Right. I want a little bit more cookie cutter, which is like why Marvel works for me. Um, And you are like, I want weird and cool. I have a question for you then about House of the Dragon. Yeah. And season or episode two of House of the Dragon. Yeah. What was your reaction to the crab feeder visuals? (laughs) The one where it's like. I think this is like the first close up we get on that the the crabs feeding not yeah. the crab feeder but the crabs feeding where the crab is like inside the leg wound of someone yeah. I was like did not need that but the crab feeder person I was yeah. like this is weird and like in my brain I was like is this does this person have grayscale is like that what's happening here like that's where my brain jumped to so I'm fascinated by it yeah, that was that I um, take to believe is the correct read on the character yes. that they have grayscale. But I did not realize that during the show, so there you go. But yeah, like that was that was the coolest visual thing that either of the first two episodes had done, as For far sure. as I'm concerned. And I think that actually speaks to some of the things we've been talking about with regards to visual yeah. effects. It's not like they had a shit ton of actual crabs feeding on actual human yeah, beings yeah, yeah, yeah. who were actually nailed into like driftwood, uh, like crucifixions on the beach. But the effects worked for us and the character design of the crab feeder worked for us. Yeah, um, totally. And, you know, and like that's a semi-invention of the show right like if i'm remembering fire and blood correctly like this person does exist but we don't find out much about them at all right right? we know there's a war in the stepstones etc etc and this is where you know the first part of the season like that's where they're going to let the conflicts lie is the stepstones war and that makes sense all of that um yeah and i think part of it is also there's this interesting dynamic that i think has happened even with just this episode where we both maybe both have greater tolerance for and expectations for the visual effects in a spectacular content IP show, whether that be House of the Dragon or an MCU show or a Star Wars show, because that comes with the territory. Right. And so like there's both, I have a greater willingness to deal with dragons. You know, I don't want dragons showing up in better call Saul or industry or whatever. Uh, I would probably watch it if they did. (laughs) I still, I think you would like industry. I think I will watch industry. There's, there's a pitch that industry is what we do after Americans. That's been in my brain. So we'll, we'll talk about that later. In 17 years. Exactly. (laughs) Um, So I'm more willing to tolerate that, but I also like, they better be fucking good. 
and they better yeah. do some of the things we are identifying as wanting them to do. Yeah. Um, I've had quite another question for you that takes us away from Marvel, away from okay. how Song of Ice and Fire, away from, from all of this. Take us away. And that's, um, I actually want to talk about Nope in the context of okay. the conversation that we've yeah. been having. And it struck me earlier when we were talking that one of the things that's happening early on in Nope before, we're going to spoil Nope yeah. for everybody. So Spoilers like, for Nope. And we're going before the alien, before we understand that the alien um, being creature is there, mm-hmm. right? That we have the early scene of Daniel Kaluuya's character with the horse in the, like, in front of a green screen. Yeah. The little CGI balls all around them. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. On and so forth. And it's the, like, reflective sur- surface that helps get the lighting correct that spooks the horse yeah. and then they lead the horse out and they're just like, we'll just do it in digital. And so there's a certain way in which like, obviously it's not original for me to say that Nope is about spectacle or Nope sure, is sure, about sure. how movies are made and how stories are told and how movies are constructed and literally shot and filmed, given how much of this is about visual language and capturing the alien creature and all of these sorts of things. But it just strikes me that there's a certain way in which that sh- that movie is engaging with this question of CGI and that you have these black horse wranglers, right, who are literally the foundation mm-hmm. of the moving picture in the first place. Yeah. And they shunt it aside because of the conditions of doing CGI in the movie or commercial or whatever it is they're supposed to be filming. Yeah, and I mean, I so that is is a really interesting thing to think about. I think alongside the like labor question that the VFX stuff brings up, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because it's like supplant, it's like displacing one form of labor with another, but both of those forms of labor are at least as we understand it, incredibly exploitative, right? Yep. Yeah. I mean, in the traditional Marxist sense, at the very least. Right. <laughs> but very before least. before we get into that, can we do a couple more minutes on? Nope? No, 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 for sure. And I have, I have, I have like like things to think about with no. But I was just like that. I hadn't been thinking about those things together. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think like let's put we'll put a pin in the labor yeah. question for a moment. Yeah, the spectacle part of it, and this is something that you and I like texted about a little bit, right? Like this brings me to like when we finally see the alien form at the end yeah. of the movie. The, when it unfurls. When it unfurls. Yeah. Yeah. Um, looks a little parachute-y. <laughs> um, and I said to you, I was like, you know, that, that was tough for me. It t- that took me out of it a bit. Mm, mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's the same thing. And, and your like very astute point was like, right. But it's, it's a, it's supposed to in some way, right? It's supposed to destabilize the boundary between the quote unquote natural and, and, and not. And so I wonder like where the, where the, how that distinction comes back into our conversation about like when effects take us out of something versus when not. Yeah. I'll say that's a great point. And I'll say, the thing about the design of the alien creature in Nope that most drew me in mm-hmm. was that very moment when it unfurls. And there's something there about the 
shattering of the, I think I would frame it as the organic, inorganic material, organic, inorganic being distinction when it moves from like flying saucer shape to this billowy, ribbony creature that was the thing that most pulled me in about the visual design of the alien being all along. And so, and I think that that connects to this, like, I want the metaphysical touch or I want the flourish or I want the transcendence or I want the whatever, like a particular kind of excess through the kinds of spectacle that CGI can create that really worked for me for the alien and nope. And that makes a lot of that makes a lot of sense to me. And I, yeah, I think the terminology of organic inorganic is is more helpful here. Again, in the movie, right? The like the inorganic horse that looks like an organic horse. Yes, is this like is exactly the right point. right. Like that. That's where it brings us back to in thinking about like oh, it was kind. The alien was in some ways like duped, right? And when the alien like. I, I thought understood it as like defecating, but maybe that's like not the the actual thing that's happening. What the alien expels, it's expelling that which is like in in some ways those things which are uh, which are inorganic, mm-hmm. right? With a bunch of organic matter, right? With, With like covering of- the house in blood and right. alien blood and the blood of the humans and horses it has already ingested, right? And so it's like the thing that that part came to for me is like, what can the alien digest versus what mm. can it? Mm-hmm. So it's, it doesn't neatly fit along the like organic inorganic. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> the thing I kept thinking about in Nope is like, and this is, this is a talking about a movie that's like a real throwback, but like in signs, I was like, why do we need to see the aliens? Can we just be afraid of the aliens and like what they're doing, like once we see the aliens, I'm like, this feels like not scary or not believable. And so I wonder if that was something that I was also experiencing in Nope. Well, Jordan Peele is satirizing that very dynamic, right? Because he has the aliens, the like classical, we got a big head yeah. and so there's some glowing of Steve Young's character. It's and like uh, the kids. And Kate, right? The two yeah. of them, they're kids. Yeah. Uh, a Kate from the Americans. I was like, Ren Schmidt. oh my <laughs> God, I know this actress. <laughs> yeah. Um, and their kids are like in alien costumes, scaring, scaring Daniel Kaluuya's character and scaring me in the audience. Well, and because we're watching a movie that we know is at least in some way about aliens. Yeah, exactly. So when those show up, I, I'm like, oh, okay. Like the aliens are here. Like this is crazy. And then it's like, of course they're not aliens, right? Because, like, it's Jordan Peele and there's, like, there's a lot of, like, destabilizing and, like, and then, like, reinventing or, or like, reinventing. Uh, it's just, like, a, like, a real intellectual take on that stuff, which I really yeah. appreciate. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, yeah, I mean, like, but to just, like, to come back to that billowy creature moment, that felt really tough for me to, like... And I think it's probably because, like, I'm the, the like, organic, inorganic, like, training that my mind has. It, it's like, oh, that looks, inorg- that looks inorganic, so it can't be an alien. Part of, I think, what's happening in this movie, in some sense, is saying, like, how could you ever understand what an yeah. alien looks like? Exactly. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... 
Right, because and everybody who tries to capture that and visually represent it in a form of mimesis, like, yeah. is terrorized or dies or yeah. whatever. And then, you know, and to differing extents, right? The TMZ person is most closely aligned with Stephen Young's character, right? Yep. They are, like, purely trying to make money to make money off all of it. All mirrors. Yep. Mm-hmm. All exactly. reflective. All reflective. Um, <laughs> which was a good idea, I suppose, for DMZ reporter. And it was a great fucking costume design. It looked like it was from a different movie. It looked like it was from, like, a hundred Impossible movie or something. In my brain, I was like, did the alien send this per? Is this, like, an alien person? I also had that thought <laughs> cross my mind when they showed up on that motorcycle in particular. Yeah. Um, uh, all right. Should we turn to the labor? Yeah, let's things talk a little we bit about to, labor. Things we wanted to get into? Yeah. So one of the other things that Daniel and I were hoping to talk about in this episode were two articles that came out and were much discussed, um, well, when we're recording about a month ago, when you're hearing this more than that. Yeah. But it's an article in Vulture from July 26th that was as told to Chris Lee in an article in Defector on August 2nd by Drew McGarry. And in the Chris Lee Vulture piece, he's just transcribing, or I don't know Lee's pronouns, so Lee is just transcribing um, what a VFX artist who has worked with Marvel and other studios, but mostly Mm -hmm. Marvel, kind of walking through what it is like at this present moment in 2022 to be a VFX artist, primarily working with Marvel. And on the Drew McGarry piece in Defector, um, McGarry writes that he talked to like uh, around a dozen people in VFX houses who had worked on Moon Knight, who had worked on The Walking Dead, who had worked on um, the sequel to 300, who had worked on Netflix shows, so a broader range of people. Okay, And there's some similar themes with regards to the labor conditions and the political economy. Yeah. The visual effects that I think bears on the conversation we had at the beginning. And yeah. so we're, we're a little bit reversing. Right? We're not doing base superstructure. We're doing superstructure base in this episode. As we do. To be crude about it. Truly. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, there, there's a lot that's happening in these two articles. We'll link to them in the show notes, certainly. But the piece that's told to Chris Lee and Vulture is talking about kind of the singular, I mean, I would use the word monopolistic power of Marvel shapes the lives and working conditions of VFX artists who are working extremely long days, who is at one point the artist calls it the bullying power of Marvel. Marvel both asking way too much of their VFX artists without giving them enough guidance and direction in some parts and way too much guidance and direction at other parts Mm -hmm. that there aren't good connections with either the director or the director of photography to the VFX artists. And, you know, the end point of this is that there needs to be both changes from the conglomerates making things side, and then there there should be unionization, which is like a good answer to many problems. Or a necessary answer to many labor problems. One, like, yes, unionize. Like, that is, that's a necessary answer. It's like, it's a necessary step into, like, establishing a set of like transforming the conditions or establishing a new set of conditions. And also like it should be viewed as a way to build collective power also with the people who want these things made. Right. Like if like, it's just, it's, I was about to have a union rant. I don't need to. No, (laughs) 
the union organizer Danielle can certainly come into the chat. It's like the thing that I don't understand about big, I mean, I do, but like that drives me nuts <laughs> about big corporations being like, don't like, Oh God, like don't unionize. Right. It's like, it's this refrain. So I like did labor organizing, like when I was a grad student, like grad labor organizing at Penn and like, it's a refrain we used all the time, which is like our working conditions are the students' learning conditions, right? Mm-hmm. And the same is true, like that mm-hmm. same mm-hmm. structural like analogy is true for, or not analogy, but like structural statement is true. Like the working conditions of the, the people who are actually doing these renderings, the laborers for these visual effects, like their working conditions like produce or are the same conditions that like people who are watching these are experiencing, right? There's a, they're, they're implicated in, in one another. Absolutely. And the thing that drives me nuts is like, we're not, we are not going to like, we're not going to give an inch like the corporations or the university, whatever the, the, the managerial body is that we're talking about, right? The, whatever, whoever has the the power, who has the control over the means of production, Mm -hmm. if we want to be crude about it. I do. I I do. Um, I can't believe we got me to talk in Marxist terms on this podcast. Um, Anyway. (laughs) I mean, we, you were like, your union, your, your, your organizing workers at a pen, a like Institute of the uh, instrument of the ruling class. If I've ever heard of one, one million percent, (laughs) you know, no, it's not like you were ever that far away. You you were always already there. Uh, Of course. Um, but like, how do these corporations, institutions, not how, how do they not realize that if you treat the people who are doing these jobs at, like with respect and as people and and if you build power it it is beneficial for everyone like there's a cost benefit analysis of this which is like just fucking like do it relent a little bit because a little bit of attention to the working conditions will make everything function in a much better way. Now that's not the only reason to do it, but like, that's the, if I was thinking like a boss, I would be like, you know what? Do I want to? You're, you're a terrible boss, Danielle. I know. The question is not, is this aesthetically or artistically the best thing that exists? The thing is, what is the level of, what is the way to minimize the costs of visual effects while maximizing the number of viewers who will pay for our streaming service? No, I know. I know. And it's like, it's just so frustrating because like a slight shift in perspective actually doesn't, doesn't even likely doesn't cost any more, but like, I think now, and not just like in this moment, but like the way that this set of relations has sedimented over time is not only is that like, is it a question of cost and minimizing costs and maximizing profit, which of course it is, but minimizing costs and maximizing profit also comes with a, like the kind of a moral high ground that is like, deeply connected to that and a whole set of like affective like a whole of affective economy that is built on and through the like domination via cost effectiveness and it's like Mm -hmm. 
it's just so frustrating. I don't have a better answer. Yeah, well, and I mean, so the McGarry piece in Defector even, you know, talked about instances where you have directors or you have kind of above the line creative people at Netflix or at Marvel or at wherever, like shitting on the work that the VFX artists are doing. And like the example that gets used there is the Taika Waititi, Tessa Thompson, like commentary on a couple of scenes from the Thor movie where like they're making fun of the visual effects in their own fucking movie. And to your point, like there was a way to prevent that, which is called like, listen to the people who are doing the VFX about what they need, both on the labor to like most bare materialist labor terms in terms of working conditions, hours, all of these like remuneration, all of these sorts of things. And on the creative side, you know, so like the McGarry piece talks about a bunch of the problems here in terms of the uh, not my problem mindset. One of the artists talks about that everything or every potential problem just gets kicked to be fixed in BFX and no one cares about doing it right the first time around that shooting on digital enables a lot, obviously a lot more footage to be shot. Yeah. And no one is then giving notes to people doing the BFX parts of it that there's not, no, they aren't hiring head effects supervisors yeah. either from the VFX houses or yeah. from the conglomerates making the shows, which leads to unclear requests and orders, which leads to like, you know, one person talked about they spent like weeks erasing like wig lines um, on, I think it was Scarlett Johansson in one of the Avengers movies yeah. because All where she was filmed with the, you know, with the red wig and they put her in a different setting and like the wig didn't work and the background didn't work yeah. and all of that. And like, you know, so there's both the, the labor question is of course, always a labor question from a Marxist perspective and also is an aesthetic question as well. Yeah. Well, and also, right. And like, this is where, this is something that weaves through both of those. It also becomes a question of expertise, right? Like, yeah. and, and, mm-hmm. and the like cost cutting measures are also in some sense, ignoring the role of expertise, however that's defined in this. And like one of the ways is like, it seems really logical to have like an effects liaison or like a head effects manager, just like you said. And I can absolutely see like some CFO being like, absolutely not. Like we do not need that budget line. Yeah, it was something I forgot what the that was something like fifteen hundred dollars, like uh, you know, a dip per day of shooting yeah. for a head effects supervisor that would have fixed a lot of problems, potentially even saved the company money. Back to your back right to your point, and so like there's also a and as global capital functions the way it does, an ongoing chain of this, right? So like one of the artists talked about like further outsourcing like lower tier VFX work Mm -hmm. to oftentimes like including like places in the global South that do VFX, right. Not telling the like original creator and like the people who made the order in the first place. So there's just like this multiple chain and multiple levels of exploitation vis-a-vis capital flows that's happening here. Yeah. And like on the one hand, right. And maybe this is sort of a way to wrap up this part of the conversation on the one hand, like, None of this is surprising. On the other hand, it all has a really dramatic effect on 
perhaps not like the immediate watching or viewership or whatever, but I can see these. And this is, I think, a thing that, you know, critics of the MCU and of Star Wars and and of these like bigger, like IP driven products, right? This is a thing that I think will, like, it won't be enough that people are interested in the IP. It's like they know that they're not going to get an enjoyable, like, visual or, like, visual aesthetic experience. And I think, like, in the long run, if, like, there isn't something done to, like, fix the relationship between these, like, FX houses and the, the corporations, like... And there isn't more careful attention paid. And those things are like, you know, overlapping. And like, I can see it like impacting profit in the long run, which is like. I mean, like choose your fighter, like Marx or Luxembourg or Harvey or whomever. Like since when does capitalism care about the crisis that's coming in 12 years, right? It cares about accumulating capital in the present and it'll do whatever it needs to do to like accumulate more when the crisis hits, like, you know. Uh, like see COVID, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Like see gas prices. Like see whatever it is. And and like no, I I know you're right. It's just like this is this is part of why I like can't dig too deep into this because it's like I'm. It just makes me angry. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, so one other kind of political economy point that's happening here, and then I think we probably want to wrap up the episode as a whole, and that is that monopolies are really shitty like or monopsonies or oligopolies are really shitty is also at work here because you know like the vulture piece focused on marvel is like the key kind of perpetrator a lot of the vfx bullshit yeah and the mcgarry piece um netflix was kind of like actually the key uh enemy here or embodiment of like vampire capital um in the creative industry so the fact that there is this monopolization that occurs and yeah. this kind of uh, gluing together of materials, right? And now, like, Warner is both Discovery and HBO, and that's already fucked over creative projects in any number of ways yeah. um, over the past, you know, month or whatever. And so just that when these firms have this amount of power yeah right they don't have to deal with the negative consequences and they can like push the contradictions or push the extraction of surplus labor farther and farther because you know like in both pieces no one can say no to any of these jobs because you can't like fuck your relationship with marvel or with netflix or with star wars or lucasfilm or whoever Right. right or you know the production team behind game of thrones stuff like you can't do it even though it yeah. means you know you're you're like doing fourteen hour crunch days for you know to do not creatively meaningful or fulfilling work that you don't even get to is like one detail that really stood out to me in the McGarry piece is that a lot of the VFX artists don't get any of like their work to like maintain or retain in any sort of digital portfolio to oh. give to future like potential employers that they are like often have to like pirate or uh, like record um stuff as it appears in the show oh my god to like include as part of their own digital yeah. portfolios and like that's a very very that was used in the piece as a very very stark example yeah. of what stark example of <laughs> what um collective bargaining might be able to achieve my faith is in the union 
I mean, look, I'm happy to end on a like, unionized, <laughs> the, <laughs> I mean, and like, this is the thing, like I was, you know, I went to school at a public university, CUNY. So like I was unionized from, you know, signing my card on the first day I was at the graduate yeah. center. And like, I'm at a public university now. So like, I'm, you know, member of one of the biggest unions, educational unions in the country. So. Yeah. And like that, like that was, I grew up, my dad was in the carpenters union, which yeah. is itself complicated, but like, you know, and at Penn, we were like mounting a campaign and it was one of the things that was like really impacted by Trump being elected Mm -hmm. is like the, because the NLRB is a political, is a body of political appointment. It became so much more hostile to grad students and to student athletes. Exactly. And like, I mean, people, there's a lot of stuff to criticize about Biden, but like, in terms of union policy, like the shift has been so dramatic. And like, that's like the, that's one of those things where it's like, when you don't have it, right. You see how important it is when you Mm -hmm. have it. Sometimes you're like, Oh, whatever. Like it's annoying or why why do I have to vote on this thing or whatever it is? Yeah, no, I hear you. And I mean, I think of it in terms of, you know, I spent two years in a visiting position at Boyd college, which is a, private small liberal arts college yeah. in Wisconsin. And like there's literally a Supreme Court ruling that says that faculty at private yeah. higher education institutions are management and not labor. Yeah. That prevents you can have an AAUP, American Association of University Professionals affiliate, yeah. but you can't have a union yeah. at a place like that. Ugh. Which is bullshit. <laughs> Even though there's something accurate about like tenured and tenure track faculty being managers, that there's an accurate inaccuracy to that that's like eerie and should cause us all to think a lot who are in this profession. One million percent. <laughs> um, well, and also it's bullshit. Well, and like I was at Rutgers for a while, right? Yeah. And Rutgers like is Rutgers is basically wall to wall in terms mm-hmm. of the union. And there are different like pieces of it, but importantly the like the visiting faculty is not part of the same exact like unit as the adjunct faculty oh so it's a separate bargaining unit yeah so the adjunct the adjunct faculty have a separate union i believe they have been working to like move them into the same unit Uh but like that on the one hand right visiting faculty are like not as precarious they they being being a visiting faculty member means that like you have some access to benefits like Mm -hmm. whereas the adjuncts are just like ad hoc teaching classes yeah so there's like certainly hierarchical things but Mm -hmm. the idea that one all the job that we're all doing is the same right i'm not advising students they're not like the the job descriptions are the same And, but the, like, that I know that I'll have classes in the next, in the spring and they don't, and like, they don't get benefits. It's just like, it's so crazy to me that this was something that like made sense to someone at some point. And it's like, this is the, the question of faculty unions is like fascinating to me and we should end because it's not necessarily what we're talking about here. But right. I, you you don't think that the audience, our vast audience, wanted a little higher labor politics as a treat? Well, they always do. But I also <laughs> think that, like, higher labor politics and, like, uh, visual effects studio labor politics and the relationship between corporations where the management sits and where that's, like, defining the the projects and the interests and and looking for the profits like 
though those are different areas, it is the same set of concerns. I would thoroughly agree with you there. And that is as much Marx as anybody will ever hear me talk about. (laughs) Not because I don't love it, but because like, I don't love talking about it. (laughs) All right. We're going to, we're going to keep working. I'm going to think of more Marxist meta episodes. (laughs) I mean, mean, like we've, we've got a whole like Soviet union situation happening in the Americans. So we have plenty of opportunities as Danielle, I think pointed out uh, at one point, we don't really ever see Elizabeth, like yeah. engaging with any pop culture or any enjoying American anything pop culture or, enjo- <laughs> or enjoying anything period. <laughs> but, but really not enjoying pop culture. And in fact, like being annoyed and angry at it's like a source of conflict with Philip when like he, he does right. The car is like the thing that jumps yeah, in my brain. Of course, of course. And so like that, the Soviet aesthetic that we joke about with like the furniture and the buildings, there's also a way in which like Elizabeth really embodies that even in her aesthetic tastes. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's fascinating. She does. As Philip points out though, she does like a good outfit bought with some US USD. Listen, travel agents got a travel agent. They got (laughs) to look good while they are turning on that copier to have yeah. a clandestine meeting in their weirdly wood paneled office. It, why is it wood paneled? Is a is a great question that I can't believe we haven't discussed until and an hour and seven ish minutes into this podcast, where we also traversed the terrain of and also faculty unions, like forty episodes into this podcast, <laughs> maybe literally forty. This might I actually think this be, might be 40. I think this is maybe forty one or forty two, uh, but it's somewhere in there, somewhere in there. So it's Who's like how, how it's you know what it is. They haven't been in the office a lot this season. There, you're right. There might have been a little more office in season one than in season two. Listen, don't worry. Like, I don't think we saw Stavos anytime in season two. Maybe only at the very beginning, actually. We get more Stavos in later seasons. Don't, so I think we got Stavos when Stan randomly showed up to the office, but I can't remember what season that was in. Yeah. <laughs> same. Same. Oh, my God. Well, I think all roads lead us back to the Americans, which is good because we still have yeah. four more seasons four to go. Four seasons to go. I feel very excited about that. Me too. Okay, well, I think that uh, that brings us to the end of this episode. Next week in your feed on Thursday, we will be back with Season 3, Episode 1, Estman, our first episode of Season 3. Um, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited for some est, more est, which I know is Danielle's favorite aspect of the day of American. It's like Claudia one est two <laughs> and her favorite things that happened in the Americans. And we all have gone a few weeks without a American episode engagement, even if we did American season two retrospective last week on the on the pod. Yeah, it keeps popping up on my Hulu, so I'm like excited to get back to it. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thanks as always to producer Amy. And we'll see you next time on Not Quite Great Books. TV podcast. joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly producer Amy. 
You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball.